Welcome to the Three Priests Walk in a Bar podcast. Welcome back to the show, everyone. It has been a while since I've given you a proper introduction to one of these episodes. Um, Really, it's just been so crazy and sporadic with these episodes in general. You guys do know that this isn't a full-time job for us, right? So anyway, um, we so enjoyed being able to get together in person to record an episode for you for last month. And we want to continue to do that with future episodes. Unfortunately, we didn't plan one for... um, an episode release in October, but we do have at least one more on the schedule and we're going to continue to do them as often as we can to get you new episodes. And we love just being able to get together the, um, the three priest and me, your sweet baby host to just interact with each other and record those episodes. The energy and the feel of it is just so much nicer and it's great to see everybody and get together. We are still continuing to think about live events. Um, we want to have one of those as soon as possible, but speaking of live events, For this month, since we don't have any new episodic content for you, we did the dirty work of going back and digging through the archives to one of the original Three Priests Walk in a Bar live events at Ashland Coffee and Tea from before I was ever involved in the show in any capacity. The event was held in May of 2019 and was called Don't Fear the Reaper talks about death and dying and the different perspectives that we have on that, how we approach that, not just in our traditions, but as Christians in general. There was also a special guest for this event, Elaine Cameron Miles. She is a hospice chaplain in the Richmond and Petersburg area and has been since the 90s. And she also serves as the host of Death Club Radio, which aired on WRIR in Richmond and is currently on hiatus, but we are hoping to see new episodes uh, in the future. Now, keep in mind, this was originally recorded and streamed to Facebook directly via an iPhone, so the audio quality leaves a little bit to be desired. I, as also your sweet baby audio engineer, tried to clean it up as best I could, but still, if you're in a noisy area, you may want to wait until you're in a place that's settled down a little bit more before you listen. Just a fair warning. So, you will hear from your three priests and Elaine on the topic of death and dying and why we don't need to fear the reaper on this episode of Three Priests Walk in a Bar. topic tonight, uh, uh, life, death, and resurrection will be one that is helpful and, uh, and that you enjoy, actually, this conversation tonight. Uh, before we begin, we're going to start with prayer. I invite you to join me. Please uh, bow your heads and pray with me. Gracious Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that you love us, that even in facing death, you promise us a way to everlasting life. With this topic tonight, which can be such a burden, something that we're afraid of, give us courage to address it and to embrace it as a doorway to something greater. 
Help us to share respectfully and to listen with open hearts and minds and help us be blessed by this time together so that we can go forth from this place and bless others. We ask this all in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Well, as we begin, we did tell you on Facebook we have a special guest. I want to just introduce her. She can uh, say a little bit about herself. Um, but uh, Elaine Cameron Ford, she, uh, she, I first met her. I was in a pastoral care class at Union Presbyterian Seminary here in Richmond. And she came to speak to our class about death and dying. And we were, a few of us were just really impressed by her compassion, her knowledge, and obvious skill. And so when we needed a placement, we um, asked for her help. And she took us under her wing, a handful of us, and uh, worked at uh, Crater Hospice, right? Isn't that what it's called? And uh, actually got in there with patients and everything. And it was, it was just an amazing experience. She is, uh, I will tell you what, she's a Unitarian Universalist minister, ordained. She is a chaplain, still currently, right? She is one of the warmest-hearted people I've ever met. And I'm not just fluffing you up. Uh, son and daughter can disagree with me, but, I, but, but I, I think she is, and she is very, very uh, skilled at meeting people as they are, where they are in the process of death and dying. So uh, I, she does have a radio show, uh, Death Club Radio, that's on, is, what's those call station? Uh, w- WRIR 97.3. Um, why don't you come up and just give a quick introduction of yourself, and we'll get into the topic. Nice to meet all of you. This is uh, very exciting for me. Um, I am, as you said, I'm a medical chaplain, which means I did the seminary studies that he did, and then I did additional studies in medicine, particularly counseling people of all spirituality and religion, um, at the end of life, which is my specialty. I chose to be a chaplain instead of going into church life because you'll notice my outfit and you'll notice their outfits. <laughs> Need I say more? It was a fashion choice. Um, now, I chose to become a medical chaplain because I love the challenge of every single day. So I've been doing medical chaplaincy since 1997, and I've yet to have two days that were the same. I um, started my radio show, Death Club Radio, five years ago. It is a talk show, and we talk about everything from philosophy to poetry to the psychology of grief. You name it, we cover it. And my specialty, and why I'm so glad that these three gentlemen invited me to be here, is my specialty is something that happens somewhere in between me and them which is that people, for some reason at the end of life, come up with questions and concerns, and for some reason, occasionally feel afraid or ashamed to talk to their religious leader about it. So I come in wearing a different costume, and people are able to open up. Um, And oftentimes, I'm able to reconnect them with the spiritual leader of their persuasion. or we're able to talk about what, we're able to unpack that. So that's a lot of what I do. Um, No two people die the same. Uh, It is a very personal and unique process, and a surprising amount of it is in your control. You are not necessarily in control of how you will die. You are in complete control of how you process 
your own mortality. So I hope uh, we'll have a question and answer time. I'm really looking forward to hearing what they have to say, and thank you for having me here. And can you mention your event this weekend? Oh, yeah. I have some flyers and some other uh, stuff that we can talk about afterwards. Um, so Deaf Club Radio has actually four arms. We're working on the octopus, but we've only got four so far. We have the radio show, uh, and that airs Thursdays at 1230, and um, Lou listens to it streaming on his uh, computer, which is the best way to listen to it. If you're on Facebook, you can like Death Club Radio and you'll get all the information about our shows. So that's one arm. The second arm is we record live every two months and we do a theatrical production that covers uh, everything from historical events that are kind of surprising in medicine to um, how people process the death of a child. Everything. We cover everything. Um, those are at the Firehouse Theater. Then we have, I have a column in North of the James magazine on death and dying. And then the, finally, the fourth arm is what we're doing uh, this weekend, which is similar to this. Uh, we will be at Intermission Beer Company, which is in Glen Allen, so halfway between here and Richmond. And we have what we call the Club of Death Club. And it's just a bunch of people who find the show interesting and have their own questions and their own contributions. Some of them are in medicine, some of them are in ministry, um, a lot of them cared for family members, and so this, we do that every other month. So this Sunday from 4 to 6, we're doing that, and I realized that that was the 5th of May, and I have actually never celebrated Cinco de Mayo, but I love puns, so we are celebrating Cinco de Dayo. Um, so, yeah, it's... A terrible pun, and yet um, it works. So uh, we have flyers about that. Thank you. Uh, one thing, another thing we're going to try to do different tonight is we're going to try to limit, this is a, a topic that a lot of us have had some kind of experience interacting with death. Uh, some of us are, are survivors of different cancers, things like that. We want to have a chance for people to ask questions and discuss things, and not just us three priests uh, waxing eloquent. So we're going to try to restrict ourselves by a little timer tonight, and uh, then hopefully everyone can just kind of join in for a, a more open discussion and give and take. Um, so I will go ahead. Uh, I wrote down a few things because it is a massive topic, and one of the things I would like to say, just to kind of set the stage for the other two priests that are coming afterwards, is that, you know, um, it's, it's really all part of the cycle of life, and a lot of, not to minimize it, but you remember like from Lion King, right, the circle of life and everything. One of the, one of the um, most powerful images I remember from working as a missionary with the Lakota Indians was a Native artist that did a, a circle of life kind of thing, doing the medicine wheel, and, and uh, they're a sacred animal for them is the buffalo, and they had uh, the buffalo at the base, and then, and then the medicine wheel, and it was to remind you of how, uh, you know, the, the buffalo, the they eat the buffalo, they live, then they die, and then they return to the plains grass. But there is also a lot of belief in afterlife through their culture and many, many other cultures. And, and, and most cultures, uh, most religions, at some level, um, if they're the more healthier ones, they're going to try to not like death, but embrace it in a sense, you know, uh, recognizing that it is a passage of some sort, a mystery. 
And I think when, when we share, when we share tonight, if somebody says something that you don't you know, exactly agree with, I, I would challenge you to just listen to it and then try to um, interpret it in, in connection with your, with your tradition, your experience, your faith. Um, I think that might help you either affirm what you believe or maybe stretch what you believe, or maybe you'll come out with a different understanding that you never thought of before, and that might bless you. I know that was my experience with the um, Native Americans that I worked with. Um, even in Scripture, and, and someone was talking to me about this even as we began today, even in Scripture, uh, Christians disagree with what happens to us after we die. Uh, some think we're in a sleep until the resurrection day, and then we wake up, and then there's judgment, and you know some people make it, and some people don't, the new heaven and new earth. Um, but there's also folks that you know look to passages such as with the uh, uh, traditionally called Dismas, the good thief, died beside Jesus, and and Jesus says, "You'll be with me in paradise today." And so, so there'll be folks that uh, believe that from that passage and others that we go to heaven. They, Traditional churches, Lutheran churches, understand that there is some sort of physical resurrection. That's our belief at the end of time. And so we still believe, even if you have gone to be with Jesus, as someone might say, you will be experiencing that physical resurrection. That's part of our one of our creedal documents. Um, what's also interesting, again, just trying to open things up with this idea of like different cultures sharing some similar beliefs. You might recall in the Lazarus story, it was, it was probably most of you heard it during Lent or, or recall it from some other worship service. Remember when uh, Lazarus' sister says, you know, that, that she'll see him at Resurrection Day? Um, some Jews believed in the resurrection and some did not. Um, but he came four days after Lazarus died, right? And, and the reason is that there was a, a Jewish belief that the spirit remained for three days, and, and therefore, I think that's probably one reason why Jesus stayed in the tomb for, you know, and went through that process is to affirm that he was really dead. It wasn't just him sleeping. It wasn't what we would understand as a coma. He was dead in the Jewish understanding. And, and that is not an alien idea. A lot of cultures, uh, including Lakota, they, they will have a, a special ceremony where they sit with the family member and, and they will uh, honor the family member's memory and they will put some a plate of food out for the family member's spirit. Now, this, the food doesn't disappear, but it's a symbolic and meaningful practice to recognize in their belief system that the spirit stays with them for a time. Now, we in, in, in modern Christianity, we tend not to think in those terms, but, but that's just to say, like, there is a lot of mystery here, and there's a lot of different faith traditions that interact with our, with our scriptures. Um, we talked uh, about um, we talked about life, death, and resurrection. And one of the powerful things about that is that we encounter death uh, very rarely in our society today, and so uh, it's usually very septic. We'll hire someone to deal with the family member, clean the family member, prepare the family member. We probably will not stay overnight with the casket, and as they did in the old days for. For wakes, wakes, waiting for someone to wake up so they wouldn't accidentally be buried. We, we do a lot of things that are very much more of a business now. And so, at least in my personal experience, and maybe some of the other pastors that are here tonight, or maybe you, uh, 
we come across a lot of folks, including some pastors, that are very uncomfortable about death. Now, I, I dealt a lot with death as a policeman. I think that helped me when I did hospice training. I did end up as a hospice chaplain. I, I, I hope I was good at it. I, I felt it was very rewarding because there's life even as you die. There's, there's so many moments that are sacred that you can witness as a hospice chaplain, that families reconciling, sacred stories shared, um, so many different things, and, and, and hopefully be a, some kind of peaceful death in the end, some kind of uh, shared experience that even as it's hard, we might walk away feeling blessed by. Um, there's a lot of different, uh, when we talk about resurrection, there's a lot of different ideas about that. Uh, there are some Christians that struggle with the concept of a physical resurrection, and so they, like some Jewish brothers and sisters, think it's going to be more of a social resurrection. It's going to be more of a, of a, a social change that happens. Uh, traditionally, we say it's a physical resurrection. Um, although... Uh, we may not ever experience resurrection on our own. Uh, the thing is that I've seen a lot of weird things as a hospice chaplain. I've had uh, got, uh, a nurse was with a patient. Wait, uh, it seemed she couldn't understand. He seemed ready to die. He had the physical changes happening, and he did not die until I came in and I prayed with him and blessed him, anointed him with oil, and prayed that the spirit, you know return him to wholeness, and, and, and that part of that wholeness is, is sometimes being with God, and by the time I, I got to the doorway, she texted me that he passed. It was as if he was waiting to be blessed and sent. Um, there was a patient I had many years ago that uh, he, um, he was physically showing signs of death, and the uh, doctors and nurses agreed to that, and so I was sent to be with the family. Uh, the family was not ready for him to die, but they, they asked me to go in with him at first. I spent some time uh, talking to him, praying with him, reading scripture to him. Then the family wanted to come in, and, and they were really having a, a very hard time letting him go and, and, and just bargaining with God and asking God to help them keep him alive. And... Uh, that wasn't usually as a pastor. You're also trying to help them through the public prayers to let go of that person, let them go into God's hands, if it's God's will, right? I mean, we certainly aren't trying to ask for someone to die, but we're asking that God's will be done. And uh, one of the things that happened is the, the next morning, despite his physical changes, the nurse called me and said he was walking around the next day talking to his family. Now, he didn't live forever, just like I don't think Lazarus lived forever. He died a couple months later. But for that family, that was a super big gift, and it was a sacred moment. So you're going to run into a lot of strange things when you're dealing with and talking about death. Um, we, talked, uh, we jokingly said, don't fear the reaper, because that faith, as we've talked about in other discussions here, that faith in the promises of Christ for us that are Christians, as we understand it, uh, is that, that nothing, not even death, will separate us from the love of God. So whether when I was a policeman and facing something, whether it was when I got diagnosed with cancer and facing something, it did not mean I never cried. It did not mean I never felt as a human being, a creature, 
feel some innate fear at the concept of death, but there was something that rooted me, an anchor for my hope, and that was the promises of God, and that's what really helped me get through uh, those near-death experiences. I also, as we were talking about with someone else earlier, I think that has enriched my life. I think it's ex- it's changed my experience with life, uh, echoing another, I think they were quoting a song, but echoing another uh, hospice patient, I want to live until I die, and and to just really value moments differently and make some decisions differently. Um, and, and I think it has helped me to, uh, not that I was never compassionate before, but as I've expressed with my congregation, my old congregation, my new congregation, it is very difficult to tell people over and over and over again that you have cancer and you may die. There's my bell. Uh, an angel got its wings. All right. So anyway, that's just to start the conversation. We're going to be give and take. And um, who's up next? Is it Father Adam? All right, Father Adam. Ready or not? Come on up. Well, out of respect to our guest, I will yield most of my time uh, because I do want to, to hear what she has to say and to probably pose many questions and allow everybody else to do the same. But I wanted to preface, if you will allow it, because I don't have it memorized, well, two things. One, there's a part of a beautiful old Irish prayer which goes, I'm a rambler, I'm a gambler, I'm a long way from home. And if you don't like me, well, poke my horn. I'll eat till I'm, I'll eat when I'm hungry, I'll drink when I'm dry. And if the moon shine, don't kill me, I'll live till I die. I don't think it's actually a prayer, it's a pub song. (laughs) (laughs) However, it's terrific and I thought it fit tonight very well. What I really wanted to read part of to you is the the last paragraph or so of St. John Chrysostom's catechetical homily for Pascha, for Easter, because I think there will be some lines in here that resonate and ring in your memory in, in, in common parlance, if nothing else. But it, here it goes. Give me a, a minute here. Enjoy ye all the feast of faith. Receive ye all the riches of loving kindness. Let no one bewail his poverty, for the universal kingdom has been revealed. Let no one weep for his iniquities, for pardon has shone forth from the grave. Let no one fear death, for the Savior's death has set us free. He that was held prisoner of it has annihilated it. By descending into hell, he made hell captive. He embittered it when it tasted his flesh. And Isaiah, foretelling this, did cry, Hell said he was embittered when it encountered thee in the lower regions. It was embittered, for it was abolished. It was embittered, for it was mocked. It was embittered, for it was slain. It was embittered, for it was overthrown. It was embittered, for it was fettered in chains. It took a body and met God face to face. It took earth and encountered heaven. It took that which was seen and fell upon the unseen. O death, where is thy sting? O hell, where is thy victory? Christ is risen and you're overthrown. Christ is risen and the demons are fallen. Christ is risen and the angels rejoice. Christ is risen and life reigns. Christ is risen and not one dead remains in the grave. For Christ, being risen from the dead, is become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. To him be glory and dominion unto ages of ages. Amen. I spared you the first paragraph, just for brevity's sake. We've heard that before often. I think Shakespeare says it, but he stole it from St. John Chrysostom. Oh, death, where is thy sting? And that is something that I think is important. 
for all of us who call upon the Lord Jesus Christ as God, and for all of us experience the grace of the community of Christ, for all of us who are part of the body of Christ gathered, we depend on this very bedrock cornerstone of our faith that Christ is risen, and so therefore are we. When we are baptized into the life of the church, when we are baptized, we are baptized three days in the tomb, the triple immersion in the water or the sprinklings, however it happened. Those are the three days in the tomb of Christ, and we rise a new creation in his resurrection. So when we celebrate the risen Christ, which for Orthodox just happened on Sunday, you know, the proper calendar, guys. <laughs> I realize you guys are still basking in your week-and-a-half-old Pascha. But we just experienced it, and I'm still tired. Uh, Orthodox Holy Week, I invite you all to come to that one day and see why it's very tiring, but beautifully tiring. It's a beautiful exhaustion. What time is your service? Um, the entire week, Father. <laughs> From morning till night. Uh, I'll post a new schedule next year. Uh, we're, we're running one every year through this place at this point. Um, <laughs> excuse me. Some, just a few things I wanted to mention. Just a few. I love death. Isn't that a silly or rather morbid or a crazy thing to say? But I have to tell you, my brothers and sisters, I love death. There is nothing more sacred than being by somebody's side when they take their last breath and being in my position, a fat guy in a black dress, I have had the opportunity to be at many a bedside when somebody is reposing. Whether we have foreknowledge of it or not, usually we do, not always. I have had the opportunity to be by somebody's side, to be invited by them most times beforehand, or their family members during and after. But it has been my great, great, great honor to have been able to sit and to experience this process, which is sacred and timeless and eternal. How many of you have been present when a baby was born? I have 11 kids. I've done it a lot. How many of you have been there? A good many of you, I suspect. You will probably remember that while there's a, a clock on the wall of every hospital, I don't know if you had them at home or at the hospital, but there's a clock on the wall, and it keeps ticking. It has batteries or electricity. It keeps ticking. But that time stops. That time is actually timeless. When a child is coming into the world, when a woman is in travail, briefly, giving birth, bringing a human being into this world through birth, or perhaps extraction if you did it that way, there is something so very different about that time. And it's the very same kind of eternal and timeless experience as when someone is taking their last breath or going through those moments when they're taking their leave of family and friends while they are still verbal and communicative. And even when they slip into that place where they can no longer respond with their voice, but they hear you and they experience you love, that you love them, and they hear your voice and they're comforted by it. And then finally, when the rattle comes, when the body is telling us that it is nearly time, that is a time of great sadness, to be sure. We cannot 
mitigate the, the loss, the earthly loss and the, the loss of that physical, tangible touch and that reciprocal experience of their love for us and ours, for them. We like to hear from someone we love that they love us too. We like to hear from our children, I love you too. And during the teenage years, that becomes very seldom. Uh, I have many teenagers right now. Oh, what do I give to hear them say, I love you too, without giving them the look or forcing a giant smooch <laughs> on them. We experience that reciprocal, loving exchange of words and sentiments and true love. But when we are there, mourning the loss of this reciprocity, at least this verbal and, 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 and tangible reciprocity of, of, of this, the gestures and the words of love, we are there, and it is the most joyful time, I tell you. It is the most joyful time, or rather it should be. There are some people who do not experience it that way. I understand that. But that is my, my great sadness to know that when people are ready to repose, that they're at a point where they are about to enter into something that is both very known and very unknown. We can unpack that later, I suppose. But the time where I have sat at someone's bedside is the most charged and turned on, switched on. This one goes to 11. Both the, the, the deeply emotional quiet and the very quiet loudness around when there are people visiting. I'll tell you a couple of stories real quick, and I know that the buzzer's going to go off soon. I have one minute. I'll tell you one story. <laughs> I'll tell you Mildred real quick. I hadn't met Mildred before. It was a dark and stormy night. And really it was. It was dreadful. And um, I lived in Pennsylvania. My first parish was in Nanakoke, Pennsylvania. And I had never met Mildred before. Mildred was a Serbian woman, uh, American Serbian, but had uh, grown up somewhere in Altoona or thereabouts and uh, in the Serbian Orthodox Church. And her family lived closer to Wilkesbury in a place called Berwick. Uh, and uh, for whatever reason, the four of her children, three sons and a daughter, had each of them in their own trajectories fallen away from the Orthodox Church. She raised them in the faith. They knew their prayers. They knew the stories. She had raised them in the faith. But they had all taken a different path. I think one son went to the Lutheran Church because he liked the, uh, the youth group better. That is something I have to concede, Father. You do youth group better. Um, so they, were, they had gone that way. And she... Was, was dying in a, in a hospice situation. And I received a call on this dark and stormy night. Could I go visit her? My friend, Father Michael, had a son who had, had just the day before had brain surgery. He was not available. And I got a call from a friend in his parish. who said, hey, this is my friend. She's Orthodox. She's dying down in um, wherever she was. I can't remember the name of the city. And would you please go to her because Father Michael's not available? I said, well, of course I will. I looked outside and I was like, Lord have mercy, I'm going to have to drive her or, or take a boat. But I, I, as I went down the highway, like at a very slow pace because of the visibility, I didn't. I had to pick my way through. It was like a fight to get there. And I walked into her, the midst of her children. They were like, "Well, this is." A, they told me the story of their mom, everything they, I needed to know about her. And I went into the room, and I saw a very distraught woman, who was very verbal, not really communicative, but she was saying, "Get me out of here! I hate you! I hate this!" You know, she was cussing up a blue streak, and uh, I was impressed. <laughs> and, I said, y'all, I don't think she's dying. I don't think I could cuss that loud if I was dying. 
she, she doesn't feel, uh, appear to me to be dying. I think you might have called me too early. And uh, she hadn't eaten in two weeks. So I was like, oh, well, okay. This is probably closer than we think. At some point, the body will be about. And so I said, this is what we're going to do. We're going to read the prayers for the sick. We'll start there. And we'll see where we go. So we began to say the prayers. The beginning, of course, of nearly any Orthodox liturgical service is the same. We call it the Trisagion prayers, the three thrice holy prayers. And as we began to say these prayers, Holy God, Holy Mighty, Holy Immortal, have mercy on us, the, the Lord's Prayer. All of a sudden, the children began to join in, and she was cussing and squawking the whole time. And as soon as she heard her four children begin to pray, she went silent and quiet. She hadn't died yet. She went quiet. She listened to these four children saying the prayers that she had taught them. She was at peace. And so we were in the, about the midpoint of the prayers for the sick. And her daughter said, I think she's gone. So we did the prayers for the departing of the soul. And of course, all the prayers that go on after that for, for the Orthodox. And they're very similar prayers, by the way, to each of their, their prayers in their books. And, and we, we watched this woman transition from a place of dis, being completely distraught to a place of complete peace. Because the people that she loved, she could hear the words that she had taught them and that the Lord has taught to us. She could die knowing that her children still remembered to pray. And this was her consolation and this was her doorway into eternity was the words that Christ had taught us. It was a most beautiful time to share together and I'm grateful for it. I have a bunch of stories, but I will honor my promise and yield my time to Father Nick because you know he's going to run on for 20 minutes. <laughs> he is Episcopalian. After <laughs> Father Adam doesn't lie. Get comfortable. Uh, so um, let me start by saying... Um, let me start by correcting Father Adam, who said that uh, who said that Shakespeare had taken this line, uh, "O death, where where is thy sting?" from uh, from Saint John Chrysostom. And uh, there's this book I want to give to you, Father Adam. It's called the Bible, and, and in the Bible there's there's a book. Called First Corinthians, and in the fifteenth chapter, Saint Paul actually says, "Oh death, where is thy sting?" Look at a rock paper scissors and Trump's Paul. Oh, Christmas. Okay. All right. I'll accept that. Uh, so, uh, I want to, I guess, go in a slightly different direction um, because I just want to keep it interesting. Uh, I, it's not that I disagree with uh, with uh, Pastor Lou or Father Adam, but I want to disagree with Pastor Lou and Father Adam a little bit. Uh, and what I want to do, it's so weird being up here on this stage. I don't, I don't know if I like this. We, we may be back down in the middle again uh, next time. But the reason why I want to do this is because I was, I was thinking about this. I, I've done, you know, uh, just like Father Adam uh, and, and Pastor Lou celebrated recently uh, the Feast of the Lord's Resurrection, Holy Pascha, or as, as we call it in the West, uh, Easter. Uh, but in the midst of that, I also uh, presided over uh, three uh, funerals, 
and uh, and went and did last rites just after uh, Holy Pascha or, or uh, Easter Sunday. Um, went and did uh, last rites with um, with yet another uh, individual. So uh, I've I've been thinking a lot about death and about resurrection, and uh, and I've been thinking about this thing that uh, medieval monks used to have. Um, not all of them, but some of them would, would carry with them a skull. Have you all heard of this? They would take with them a skull, and it was called the memento mori. Uh, it's, it's this thing that's supposed to remind them, this token to remind them that one day they will die. One day they will die. Uh, and they would carry this around with them. Well, actually, memento mori, uh, a, a more literal translation of the Latin is uh, remember to die. Not just remember one day you will die, but remember to die. And I was thinking about why in the world would, would somebody need to be reminded that one day they will die. And I, I think it's really because that's something we constantly push out of our minds. Just so we can get through day-to-day life, we, we push that away. And of course it breaks in from time to time when we have a family member or a friend, a loved one who passes away or something like that. But typically we try and keep that at bay. We don't want to remember that one day we will die. We don't want to remember that one day we must die. And there's two ways that we do this. Uh, one of the ways that we do this is that um, we pretend as if we will get out of life alive. Right? That's how uh, one of my favorite theologians, uh, Stanley Hauerwas, puts it. He says, uh, we, we, we've convinced ourselves that one day we'll get out of life, that we'll be able to get out of life alive. And so we do all sorts of things to try and Pretend like we won't die one day. I mean, this is what most of cosmetic surgery is about. Let's not look like we're actually aging because aging means that one day you're going to die. So let's let's uh, get facelifts and tummy tucks and all that kind of stuff so that we can pretend like we're not already in the process of dying. But this is also uh, what we. Um, I mean, why most hospitals have a separate elevator that they take the dead who have died in the hospital down to the morgue end, right? So that no, none of the other patients have to know what happens to a lot of people when they go into the hospital, right? You might not actually get out of there alive. I mean, it's, it's, it's behind so much of what we do. Uh, as, again, as Hauerwas points out, the majority of the money that we spend as a culture is in crisis care medicine. It's not in uh, the kinds of things that promote and create a healthy population. What it is is uh, what you do with somebody who has come to death's door, how long can you keep them alive? Most of the money we put into the practice of medicine is crisis care, how to keep people alive. And as Hauerwas has pointed out, we put uh, doctors in this bind because we want them to keep us alive long enough 
so that we don't have to know that we're dying when we're dying. And then we get to blame the doctors for keeping our loved ones alive for so long, right? Why did you keep them alive? You just wanted to make money, right? But really, we don't want to know that we're dying when we're dying. So we have this, this, this part of our, our culture, our common life, where we just try and pretend like death is not a real thing. And I, I often think about um, uh, Emily Dickinson's poem, uh, where she says, uh, because I could not stop for death, he kindly stopped for me. Right? Because it's going to happen anyway. Even if you don't prepare for it, even if you don't believe it's going to happen to you, death will kindly stop for you too. So that's, that's one, one thing that we do. And I actually think uh, a part of that or maybe the a second thing, but it's, it's related, is that we try and uh, convince ourselves that we can be reconciled with death. And this is the part where I guess I'm going to disagree a little bit with uh, the other speakers this evening. Is that I'm not sure that this is the best thing, to reconcile ourselves to death, and because this is what, re- as Pastor Lou said, this is what religions tend to do, right? They help us get reconciled with the fact that we're going to die, and they often do this by spending a nice, nice story about how, when we die, don't worry, we're not actually dead, but we're going to keep going in some way. You know, my heart will go on, as Celine Dion says, right? We're just going to keep going. And it doesn't, two minutes? Are you serious? Oh. <laughs> I'm just getting revved up, Pastor Lou. All right. <laughs> You're not going on. Well, you disagreed with us, so there you go. Like, <laughs> I, know, I know better than to disagree with the timekeeper. <laughs> so religion is all about uh, helping us to reconcile us with the fact, helping us reconcile ourselves to the fact that we're going to die. Here's the thing, though. This is where I think, uh, as Karl Barth has said and, and other theologians have said, that Christianity, though, though it is religious, is not a religion in that sense. The purpose of Christianity is not to reconcile us with the way the world is. It's not to reconcile us with death because, in fact, we're told in Scripture, that very same Scripture that I, I'd like Father Adam to read sometime. We're told, <laughs> we're told in Scripture that death is the final enemy. That death is the final enemy. If death is the enemy, our, the point isn't to be reconciled with death. And in fact, as, as Father Adam quoted, that you know, Scripture uh, proclaims that Christ has conquered death by death. Right? He has removed the sting of death. He has overcome death. And that's what I think is the difference between Christianity and, say, other religions, is that other religions are about reconciling you to the fact that you're going to die. And they might tell you a nice lie to help you get there, to that reconciliation with the fact that you're going to die, but that's not what Christianity is about. In fact, what Christianity is about is to tell you that, yes, you will die, 
And that's absolutely true, because if it was true for Jesus Christ, it will be true for you too. And Jesus Christ really, truly died. I promise I'm wrapping it up. He really, truly died. He didn't kind of die. Jesus didn't die, and then, his, and then he went up to heaven and got his harp and his wings. Uh, Jesus really died on the cross. And if Christ died, we will die too. And death really is what we fear it to be. It is the end of who we are. It is the end of who we are. We don't go on. That is why I think Dylan Thomas was right in his poem uh, to say, rage, rage against the dying of the light. Because, in fact, that is... Uh, our natural state if we're not reconciled through some pretty lie that we're given by religion. And yet the Christian hope, the Christian hope is in the resurrection of Christ. Because if Christ truly died then, and was raised, then we too who will truly die will be raised in a resurrection like his, as St. Paul says in Romans chapter 6, we will be raised with him and in him as part of his glorified, resurrected body. So that, and this is how, where I'm wrapping it up, I promise. So that uh, we have this prayer in the commendation at the rite of burial in the Book of Common Prayer, where we say, we say, uh, and now I'm going to try and remember it. Uh, we say that, um, you know, we say to God, you only are immortal. Thou only art immortal, the creator and maker of mankind. And we are mortal, formed of the earth, and to earth we shall return. For so did thou ordainest when thou createst me, saying, Dust thou art, and unto dust thou shalt return. Yet even at the grave we make our song, Alleluia, Alleluia, Alleluia. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was, I was going to say I didn't realize Episcopalians were such bummers. Yeah. <laughs> I thought you were the fun ones. Um, we only had a chance to touch upon a few things tonight. I do. Want, this is the time where we start to hopefully have some dialogue, some interaction with questions or comments or whatever reflections you want to share. Um, I I don't want you to think that based on uh, Father Nick's comments that that. Father Adam and myself, I think all the traditions are the same. We recognize death sucks, right? There's no way around, no way to sugarcoat it. And, and I think it's just that death is something none of us can avoid, and we should live until we die. You, you know, Jesus promised us an abundant life. And if we're focused so much on our death, we cannot live. And so I would suggest, at least for me, what I try to do since I've got... Uh, a cancer that can usually come back and whatnot. Uh, I try to live my life. Uh, every day is, is a new life. Every day is a new chance. 
And it's, it's not a matter of trying to sugarcoat it or, or have religion be an opiate for us. It, uh, religion, that faith, that trust, that, that's what Martin Luther would argue a good death is, is when we die trusting in the promises of Christ, which is the resurrection. So I think all three traditions really are closer than they might have sound tonight. Um, so anyway, uh, what is your thinking, thoughts, questions, comments, uh, Please do. Go ahead. I just wanted uh, to give a slightly different voice since we had three voices of the soul and the spirit. Right. Um, I want to be the voice of the body. Uh, so one thing uh, that I had to throw away very quickly in seminary was my attachment to theologians. <laughs> and the reason was I worked in group homes I worked my whole way through seminary I was a bartender for part of it I worked in group homes I tutored German I did all this stuff so that I could go to seminary and one day uh, and I had a buddy in seminary and she was going through seminary at oh she was over 50 as she went through and so she and I would kind of sit together because we were kind enough to wake each other up without you know, making a big stir about it, because we've both been working, you know. So she and I are in seminary, and we are in, um, I don't know, maybe we're listening to, talking about Schleiermacher or something, which I loved. I read it in the original German. I loved it. And all of a sudden, our classmates, like, all turned on each other, as if someone had said that St. John of Chrysostom said something instead of someone else. Uh, so they all turned on each other. It was all crazy. And she and I both woke up, and we looked around, and all these students, and we had a lot of different religions at this, a lot of different, sorry, denominations in this seminary, and they're going at it, going at it. And she turns and looks at me, because she knows that I'm working in group homes. And I turn and look at her, and she says, I think some people need to wipe another person's butt. <laughs> And what she meant by that is these interests of the mind only go so far when you are taking care 24-7 of the person you love more than anyone in the world. Um, I'm not saying that it should be out because I love it and I loved what all three of you had to say. Uh, but what comes to me and what they're afraid sometimes, and I have to tell them, He's a priest. He understands poop. It's okay. Um, is that people are going through something of the body that is deeply distressing of the body. Watching the love of your life waste away before you and cry themselves to sleep because they are in untreatable pain. That is, a, is beyond just worrying about the soul, it's how do I get through three hours from now? Um, and so my job, quite truly, is to talk about poop. Uh, to I have had one of the greatest theological discussions I had last year involved a patient whose wife was not emptying his catheter in the right way. And so we had a 45-minute discussion about his penis. <laughs> and I was thinking, oh, I wish I'd known this when I was in seminary, that I could tell everyone, look, Schleiermacher's cool, but you better know how a penis works. 
Um, so <laughs> the body. It's true. You it's know true. What I do. Yeah, tonight. Yeah, That's mom, the quote you know, that wins tonight, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> so my mom, I had lunch with her yesterday. I said, "Don't hug me too close." My patient was a smoker this morning, and my mother's really she doesn't like smoke at all. I said, "Don't give me a hug." She goes. I do not know how you do what you do every day. My mom, I've been doing it for 22 years. What are we talking about here? And she says, well, you know, just the emotions, the this, the that. I said, we're talking about farts, aren't we? She's like, yes, how do you go into smells and whatever? I don't think you're any more the core of yourself than when you are dealing with the physical ravages of death and understanding that and to me how Jesus, God the spirit prayer, hope love, all got bigger the more physical devastation I saw they didn't get smaller, they got bigger and they got bigger because I could feel it I could feel it some of you who've had illnesses know those first twinges of pain when you're like, what is this? And you think, oh, it's nothing. And then you go and you find out, oh, it's something. And that's the point where either your understanding of faith cracks open like a walnut out of a shell and it becomes part of your body or it shrivels away and, and dies. So I would hope that in your discussion tonight that you feel free. Gentlemen, I would like all three of you to nod. Yes, my dear friends, my brothers and sisters, I can talk to you about poop. Can we get that out of a nod of all three of you? He's got 11 kids, for God's sake. He knows so much about poop. (laughs) And by poop, I mean the metaphorical poop that our bodies can do. So I would hope that in our discussion, we can talk about both this concept of resurrection, which I see every day, because in addition to dealing with death, I deal with grieving people. And to me, resurrection, I have people I've worked with for over three years. And for me, resurrection is they can tell a story about that loved one, and it's a story I know, and I'm in it. And their loved one is right there with us. They are right there with us, and the three of us are together, and they are alive and well in that story because they have been brought back to life through memory. Um, So I would hope we could talk about that, but also talk about your nitty-gritty fears. The American healthcare system, yet again, was found to be the worst in the civilized world our fears about our health care and what will be done for us and our loved ones are well-grounded. So that would be what I would say. And I know more about morphine. I know about, I know about all that stuff. So um, happy to talk about any of those things. Yeah, I think the, the important thing to remember, and I, and I hope we started off right, is that there's a lot of different perspectives on death and a lot of it is a mystery. You know, and it, and it does come down to you're going to experience life differently when you face death head on. 
And that's part of what she's alluding to. So whatever you'd like to talk about tonight, whatever you'd like to share, feel free to do so. Pastor Lou, we, we have another hospice chaplain here. I thought, uh, and he's going to have to leave soon. So I thought oh, yeah, it might be good if he, if he got wants. up and said a if couple of words. You know how I knew he was a hospice chaplain? He kept and nodding. He was the one person who breathed <laughs> in the whole room. If you're going to um, share, you don't have to feel like you have to come up here. But, but, but Jeff, he, you do have, have to come up here. <laughs> I've been put on the spot. And tell yeah, us who yeah. you are, take, by the way. Take the introvert and put them in a... Yeah, it's good for you. Yeah. Um, so I'm Jeff. Um, I'm a good friend of Nick's here. Um, I've been an attendee here for a couple months now. Outside uh, voice. Uh, outside voice. Um, I work as a hospice chaplain in the city of Richmond um, with Bon Secours. I've worked as a chaplain in a healthcare setting, an inpatient setting for a good four to five years. Um, Your denomination quite a lot. Your denominational tradition? A uh, denominational tradition. Um, another fan of Harold Loss. Uh, yeah, he frequently calls himself an ecclesial whore. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm Baptist by background. Currently, I worship in a Mennonite church, and I like to read quirky <laughs> Eastern Orthodox theologians and Catholic moral philosophers. There you go. <laughs> um, eclectic, um, to say the least. Uh, so... I was nodding a lot because I feel like I live in two worlds. Um, listening to Father Nick speak, I found myself nodding um, quite a bit, thinking about the Christian tradition and the resurrection, um, and that death is indeed um, an enemy, and an enemy that is one of the last enemies to be defeated. Um, thinking about Christian eschatology, there's a sense that God through Christ is victorious over those powers of sin, death, and evil, and that our, our death and our rebirth through resurrection is a participation in God's recreation and recapitulation of all creation, which goes back to God as creator. So I also live in the world as a hospice chaplain where I dwell in these sacred spaces with people on a daily basis. Um, and I guess working in hospice in many ways, more so than seminary, more, in some ways more uniquely than folks like Harawas. Um, has really opened the sense of mystery for me. Um, just the other day, I was visiting with a, a family that was Chinese Buddhist by tradition, and I walk in the space where they have an incantation recorded playing of um, folks chanting the name of the Buddha to encourage this person to stay on the right path that in their religious modality of thought uh, was a preparation to focus on compassion relief as they prepare to go to the pure place um, in their religious system of thought. Um, and then I go down the hall and I meet with this wonderful family, another person who's at the end of life, and I hear um, old gospel hymns playing in the background. And, and I couldn't help but draw the comparison in my mind of contemplatively reflecting upon the name of the Buddha and the Bodhisattvas to stay on that path of light. And then someone reflecting upon the goodness of God um, revealed through Jesus Christ and praising his name. Um, and deal with a lot of poop, too. Deal <laughs> <laughs> with a lot of poop, too. Um, trying to think of a good story that I can kind of wrap up with a little bit that's opened me to a lot of mystery around death and dying. Um, I'll tell one story of uh, when I was still in the hospital as an inpatient chaplain. There's this wonderful woman... Um, kind of advanced Alzheimer's disorder, um, disease, um, had been in the hospital on her palliative care caseload for a while. 
Um, I followed along with them, supported the families, they processed through things, and she consistently was saying, um, Charlie's coming, Charlie's coming, and she had a specific date in April that Charlie was coming. Charlie was her deceased husband. Um, well, a few weeks continue to go by, we think, okay, she's kind of, she's talking about her husband, she's back in a different place in her life where she's remembering the spouse that she loves. Um, well, um, speed the story up a little bit, there's a lot of in-between and pastoral visits and there's a lot of in-between and pastoral visits and um, support for the family. Um, that day that she was waiting for, um, that Charlie was coming, because we're going to throw a party for Charlie, Charlie's coming, she actually dies peacefully on that day. Um, and myself, the family, the nursing staff, all left with the sense of these are the stories that we try to remember, to remember that there's something mysterious and sacred in what we're doing, uh, whether it relates to my particular um, theological persuasion, how I understand God's recapitulation of all things through Jesus Christ, or whether it's walking alongside a family that isn't working with that same system of thought, but saying that there's still something profound and mysterious here, um, and that a lot of my colleagues, nursing, chaplain, CNAs um, of different religious persuasions or lack thereof work with the sense of there's, there's something holy we're encountering here um, as we work through our religious thoughts, as we're reflecting on death and the afterlife, and as we're even working through some of the messy, something I kept nodding my head, thinking about what you were talking was, um, just the raw physicality of that experience, too. I'll wrap up there. Thank you. Um, thank you Thanks, for putting Jeff. me on the spot. I appreciate it. Yeah, I, I hope you, because uh, I think they touched upon something, because I've been a hospice chaplain, a police chaplain, where I've dealt with uh, cases of homicide and other violent type of deaths. And then also as a pastor, we're all working towards some of the same ends, you know, to care for those entrusted to us. But there is a difference in role. I mean, I do think you're going to have folks dealing with more some of the medical physicality things with them than with us but also like when we're pastors we're also asked to try to help give them some cognitive framing to process death and to to offer hope you know the funeral is not just to be focused on the loss the the the, the experience although i do like to name that and, and you know help people deal with it name it jesus cried when lazarus died but to also you know you're moving towards we're supposed to try to help people start to recognize through the funeral that we can walk on and, and walk on in life. And, and so there are little different roles that we have. Now, with the time we have left, you don't have to come up here. Any questions don't, don't have to be theological. You don't have to quote anyone like Father Nick. Um, but who, what, what type of questions, You can quote comments, me anytime. Insights? You can quote <laughs> Father Nick. What, who would like to share something? Yes, way back there. And one of the things we've done as a society is, is essentially to outsource death. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think back a hundred years ago, not from my own personal experience, but just from reading, <laughs> and, and death, death was, part, was much more a part of life for people then than it is now. I mean, people died at home, right? right. Bodies were laid out in living rooms. Right. Family came to visit. Friends came to visit. You know, we've outsourced all that now. As soon as people get sick, we take them away. We put them in hospitals. Um, my, my father died of prostate cancer, but he didn't want to go to the hospital. He stayed home, and my mother looked after him 
as long as she could physically, and then hospice came in and helped, and that's a wonderful service. I mean, that's, that's a, a limited outsource, but if in the 19th century tradition, we'd have all been living there in that same house, and we would have performed those services ourselves. So it's like, you know, we, we push it away, right? Even when it in, involves our family members, we just we outsource it. And somehow I think we need to reintegrate it into, into our lives because it is part of life. And I do think hospice helps with that. I think, I think that's part of it. I would recommend her, and this is not a shameless plug, but her radio show will talk about a lot of the concrete things. Uh, and again, it's on the web, so you can listen to it when you want. And even uh, a recommendation she had for a Netflix show, for The Casketeers, it's called. Uh, real interesting to see how modern and ancient mingle together in a multicultural setting. Um, so there are ways that you can open yourself up to uh, new understandings and encounters with death. And I think to the sociological reason we started outsourcing was because more people were having job opportunities. And instead of, I mean, it's almost an architectural decision. Instead of eight people in the home, there became four people in the home or three people in the home. And we lost our experts. Every family had people who were dedicated to certain things. This one's dedicated to cooking. This one's dedicated to fixing things. This one's dedicated to death. Um, everyone had those certain roles. Well, once I had had to go out and become a seamstress instead of being dedicated to death, I couldn't pass that on to the next generation. So we lost our experts. And... Um, so I think what is essential, and as he said, what I do with my radio show, and what I see a lot of churches doing, which I think is really wonderful, um, they started it with parish nursing, but is teaching people, you know, this is how caregiving works. And the number one thing you don't want to do in caregiving is the American mindset of, I'm just going to work harder. You know, I'm not going to ask for help. I'm just going to work harder and harder and harder and harder, and then you're going to end up in the hospital um, because we no longer value people asking for help. Um, so I, those are just a couple of things that your comments made me think of. Yes. What else? Who else? Uh, just since you would all use different hospices if you use them, uh, what she described, the spiritual care element, is federally mandated. If you end up with a hospice that does not have a chaplain, they are breaking the law, which I think is fascinating. Um, it's the one case where, I, I don't know, it's just fascinating. And, and I'm really glad because it pays, pays for my life. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but um, some, there are some fly-by-night hospices, I don't know yeah. what to call them, who are run by restaurant corporations. And they're just coming into town, trying to make a quick million or two, and, and then heading out. And you'll find that they will cut corners. That ever happens, send up a red flag. Um, there are 26 hospices just in the Richmond area alone. When I was five. Doodle, doodle, doodle. This might be a long one. When oh, I was no. five, my grandmother... At 62 years of age, reposed from, well, a heart attack, but she was suffering from colon cancer. Uh, but interestingly, she, her, the cause of death was uh, myocardial infarction uh, while under anesthesia on the operating table. 
Um, so quite a bit younger than my parents are even today. I was five, and I desperately, deeply, dearly needed, wanted, struggled to experience her dying. And I remember at five years old, being somebody of average intelligence, yet still there was this burning thing within me to experience her death with my family. I was five and there were babysitters, neighbors and such that watched me while the older siblings, I come from a lot of kids myself, um, I'm one of seven. Well, most of the older kids were able to participate. They went to the funeral. They got to go, I think, to, to the wake. They got to go and, and do the, even the whitewashed conventional American death scene, if you will. They got to experience at least that. I remember how my grandmother smelled. She smelled like Chanel Number no. 5 and coffee. <laughs> Instant coffee, which is direct. But when I smell it, it smells beautiful. And I loved her even though I hear she was a real ball buster. I loved her because to me she was not. And, uh, and I, I, I wanted deeply and dearly to experience these things that the family was partaking in. These, these ways of saying goodbye. These, I mean, I saw my mother crying. And, and that was, you know, she was herself kind of a ball buster. Um, and so she wasn't a big crier. But I saw her mother had died, and I wanted to very deeply, and I think in a very mature way, at five, I very deeply wanted to enter into that with them because that was part of my life, too. And I wasn't able to experience it, and I think to this day, I still resent that. And so when I was in my first parish, I'm fast-forwarding for brevity's sake, I promise not to talk to you <laughs> And I'm lying. Um, my first parish was a very elderly parish in Pennsylvania, in a very traditional northeast corner of Pennsylvania, Nanticoke, which is a satellite town of Wilkesbury, which is easily 50 years behind the times in every respect, medically, socially, culturally. Um, they're, they're, they're kind of, they live in the past a little bit. They're more of a traditional community. I had a parish full of very elderly people. And what I first, here's the first Two things. First, one thing I have learned as a pastor is if you want to get to know a parish and, and for them to, 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 become, to fall in love with them and for them to fall in love with you, you learn the names and the stories of their loved ones who have died. Those are your people, too. You are pastoring your people by loving their departed. You are adopting their dead family members because their stories are your stories. If you're going to be the father of a congregation, you will love those whose graves you bless every year. If you're going to be the father of a congregation, the stories of those who have passed become part of your script for approaching annual house blessings, for pastoral care when they themselves are dying, and, and such. Their stories become your stories. What I took away from that parish that, I, that lives with me today, and this was part of my thinking prior to, but only was underpinned by their stories. Father... When we were coming up, now I had a lot of nonagenarians in my parish. Something in the water up there. These people get cancer and, and every disease known to man that they will not die. They live into their late 90s. Um, so they have stories. 
Father, when we were fucking around in this village and all of us were still speaking Slovak or Russian in America, we were the coal crackers, we were the cabbage eaters, and this was our little shtetl, our ghetto outside of the town because the Irish had already prevailed. This was after the times when the Irish need not apply. The Slavs need not apply. If you want to work in the mines, that's fine. But we lived over in this little village where the church was. And most of us came here either from uh, Eastern Europe speaking Slovak or, or, or Little Russian, or Pitho Russian and such, or our parents did, definitely, and we, we spoke English and, and Russian. We were raised, and when someone died, which happened, infant mortality being a low number in our country is only a few generations old. Children die all the time. People died in the mines all the time. When you died, your friends carried you out of the mines. Perhaps they stopped at the, at the beer garden on the way home, and then if they liked you a lot, they dropped your dead ass on the porch. And they walked back to their homes, and it was up to the rest of the community to help bury you. When children died, it was the children who carried the bodies of the children to the cemetery when it was time to bury them. And there was somebody on the table every other month, it seemed like. And that was natural. These people remember it. These people who were 90, 80, 70, 60 and 50-year-olds don't remember it so much. It had already begun to evaporate at that point. But these people lived this experience of people dying. And that being part of the fabric of their lives. As quite normal. Sad, of course. These were dreadful things that happened. But... This was their experience. They, death was not sanitized. It was not held away from They lived in these little villages in Pennsylvania and in other places too. They had this communal life. They buried their dead. They went back to work. They fed the people who were left without their father. Somebody would end up taking over, helping to, to, to get the things that the family needed. These people survived because they were a unit. I hate to quote Mrs. Clinton, but it does take the village sometimes to, to get through somebody's death. It takes the community having a purchase point in, in this existence that has to do with the very nitty-gritty of living and dying. And as a five-year-old, I would almost give anything to have had the experience to kiss my grandmother's face one last time, because that was mine to have, and it was taken from me. And that is the experience of most people today who are alive. We experience death as a sanitized, separated, almost castigated, like the leprous, vile awfulness that it is, and it's sent out of the village. And that is a travesty into poverty. And I really hope, I don't know how, I hope that we will obliterate that somehow and bring this back into our experience and allow our dead to be in our living rooms where family visit and, and, and uh, we, we stay. In the Orthodox tradition, we do stay up with the corpse all night when it comes into the church. We have the all-night vigil like we do with the, with the Christ in the tomb. The, 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 we have the shroud that we lay in the, the, the wooden tomb that we have in the middle of the church and adorned with flowers and such. And we have people who stay up all night throughout the entire night reading from the Psalms, from the Psalter. So then at least one person is in the church at all times reading the Psalms and being with that, that, that body of Christ. 
We do it when the person dies too. Somebody stays up and reads the Psalter. And in the morning they begin to read the Acts until the funeral begins. Because this is our last gift to the departed. I desperately wish that I had been able to kiss my grandmother's corpse and send her into eternity with, with the rest of my family. I don't blame them. It's, there's nobody at fault. It's, it's just what we've been given. It's what we've received, and it's a terrible, eviscerated corpse. <coughs> In and of itself, it is a corpse, the experience of dying, and it shouldn't be. It should be very much alive. I yield the rest of my time, Father. Well, I think that's probably... Oh, who else? Yes. Father, would you define repose? What do you oh, repose? What, do you, what do you mean by repose? Dead. <laughs> Dead. A sanitized word for death. <laughs> that which he was just protesting about. It, it, it's very poetic and it's orthodox sounding, but repose, uh, blessed repose, uh, dying, the physical death of the body and the separation of the soul therefrom uh, for a temporary time. In, in closing, one of the things that um, his story reminded me of is in, in law enforcement or first responder chaplaincy, uh, one of the things they try to do with rookies is to handle a dead body real early because it makes a death imprint is what they call it. I remember clear as day, my first dead body who'd been dead for a week. I remember the sights, the smells, every, I, in ridiculous details I've seen many, many, many deaths since, but that one is incredible. And I think in some ways, when we have children in the household and it's their first encounter with death, it could be very helpful or hurtful to them how you try to facilitate their experience with it. And, and I do think it would be uh, whoever it is, including if you're a pastor, talk to someone else outside of the family circle to maybe help with that discernment, whether it's a chaplain or another pastor or something, um, because it, it, it can really last, as he just testified to, it can really last. All right, so. I think um, we should probably, do you want to answer that one? But I think we should probably, because you came here as individuals with a question about something pretty, pretty big. <laughs> um, but there's a community thing that we should probably do before we leave. But if you, do you have time to answer a question first? Well, it's not really a question. I just want to make a comment. Death and the funeral, it does not have to be as sterile as you want. Um, when my father died in 97, uh, before he died, he, I guess he knew he was going to die. A week before he died, he went to the county seat. He got permission for a family cemetery on the property. He spoke to my brother about digging the grave. And it was all very personal for us because my brother dug the grave and we all sat with him. And we went through that whole thing with him. And we're kind of adding that for my mother when she goes. So it can still be personal. Very special. I am so happy to hear that. That, That's that's absolutely fantastic. I hope that everybody gets to have that in in their life. And I know that that is probably not for everybody to experience, but I hope that they will because that's very important. I envy you. So, um, 
I think it's very important because we sit with our thoughts about death or whatever, and we forget the person <clears throat> beside us sometimes. So I'm just going to ask some questions, and I hope you'll feel safe in this room to raise your hand and um, if it applies to you, and to also look around. Um, we have an age range in this room from 13 to Jack Benny's 39. Um, <laughs> if, if you're like me, 39 and stayed safe. Um, so we have a pretty wide age range here, um, so I'd like you to look around. Um, the first question is how many people here have survived a life-threatening event, an illness, an accident? Okay. How many people here have witnessed a death? How many people here have said a eulogy? <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> yeah, three don't count. <laughs> How many here um, feel that you are still grieving a loss? Thank you for your honesty on that. And I hope everyone saw that that had the most hands of anything we've said. Um, how many of you would like to discuss really important things about life and death and have felt funny doing so? And finally, how many of you have prepared for your death? by funeral arrangements or talking with your clergy or obituary or whatever. Wonderful. Um, that is the kind of, if you want to go to a party and really learn something about someone, ask those questions. That's how you get to know somebody. Or talk about poop. That also <laughs> That's always a good one. That's it, Pastor. All right, well, thank you all very much. Will you bless us out, Pastor Lou? Oh, sure. Grace heaven, Father, go with us into the night. Help us always hold on to your light. Help us to be brave. Help protect us from harm and every evil. And grant us a blessed sleep this night. We ask this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. 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 So we hope you enjoyed that little deep dive into the archives from the pre-podcast days. We are chomping at the bit to be able to get back to doing that again. And as soon as it's safe, as soon as we feel like we're able to get something together, um, you have our word. We are going to do what we can to get it to get it facilitated. So thank you so much for listening and tune in next time where we will hopefully all things COVID permitting. We will have a new episode for you on a topic uh, that may have already been determined, but I haven't looked at my messages in a while. We will see you guys then.